you're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the original Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars podcast of StarWarsReport.com discussing all things with the Rebels animated series. I am not Jonathan this time around. You may have heard at the beginning of our last episode covering The Force Awakens that there's been a bit of a shake-up here behind the scenes, so I am Nathan, and Jonathan has stepped away from the show right now. He has a lot of stuff going on in his uh, new position, his new professional position, and just time is is disappearing on him, so he's taking a bit of a break. I'm stepping into the duties for these last few episodes, and we've changed the format a little bit. We are going to end this show after Season 2 is over. So as we get towards the end of Season 2, we're going to have episodes like this that are basically lightning rounds, checking out several episodes at a time, about 15 minutes each. Not quite as in-depth a discussion, but a chance to get the thoughts in about it, some general reviews, and get into some of the individual items that might be discussion-worthy from the individual episodes. This time we're going to be discussing A Princess on Lothal, The Protector of Concord Dawn, Legends of the Lasat, The Call, Homecoming, and The Honorable Ones. And with me this time to discuss, we have Mark. Hey, everybody. Taylor. Hey. And Barrett. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back. All right, let's jump right in here. The first episode for us to cover this time around is the first one of 2016. We are covering all of January and February, basically. It is A Princess on Lothal. The general gist of the story is that after what happened at Gorel, the rebels need reinforcements. They need new ships. They need uh, new resources. And Bail Organa has sent that in the form of three large vessels, kind of older vessels there, that are being brought to Lothal by, of all people, his adoptive daughter, Leia Organa. This is the first time Leia has appeared in the series, and she works with the rebels to essentially help them to steal the ships out from under her so that they can take the ships but Alderaan won't get the blame for letting them go or handing them off to the Rebel Alliance. It gives us a chance to see her in action and brings Ryder Azadi into the Rebel fold as he provides some of the expertise to do the theft and eventually joins the Rebels after being inspired by what they've done here and the work of Ezra's parents. So let's get some general impressions first. We'll just go around the table here. Mark, what'd you think of this episode? Man, overall, with this one, I was kind of meh. I mean, it, it did serve to show how the governor got back into the battle, and we watched how the fleet grew. But beyond that, I was really kind of raising more questions about age in this. <laughs> Taylor? I don't honestly really know. It was kind of eh, like my dad said. But yeah, I didn't really like it that well. Not a fan of Leia, huh? Well, I like Leia. It was just meh. Not used well. Okay. Yeah. Barrent? Oh, man, I got to disagree with both of you guys. I thought this was a very interesting show. I thought that animated Leia looks spot on. I don't know what they did with her lips 
or the way they had her move or the way they did not have them move them. But I mean, she was Princess Leia. It was Carrie Fisher. And I thought it was spot on. And sometimes they have a little trouble getting this these characters to look the way that they want them to look or kind of the way that we think they should look in this animated style or mm-hmm. this CGI style, you know, but they really got Leia done really well. And one of the things I really I really liked was they did not kind of sexualize her up. You know, she wasn't wearing any skimpy outfits or anything. She was wearing something that we thought maybe a representative from the Senate would wear. And I hear what you're saying, Mark. There are some questions. There, when Leia was announced to be on the show coming up, there were some questions about how old she is. If Ezra is around the same age, but she's kind of looks a little older, you know, all that stuff that I guess we'll go into real quick. But I thought it was a good use of Leia. You could see that at this time that the Empire really have their eye on Leia. She's kind of suspected at this point, which kind of makes sense. You know, she talks a lot of mess, but I I thought I thought it was a really good use of the character. And I guess I'm going to have to sort of agree and disagree with Barrent here. I thought this was, at least of this batch of six, probably one of the most satisfying episodes. It gave us getting Ryder into the fight. It brought Leia into the mix, which was something that we were kind of expecting would sometime happen. We just didn't realize it would necessarily happen right as we were coming back from the break. And I think the idea that there needs to be some plausible deniability and such, you know, for Alderaan, so they can't just give the resources in this case, they can hand it off, but it's got to be in the guise of a theft. I think that worked pretty well. And the, the episode's got some decent action. You've got a couple of ATATs versus the ships versus Kanan going all, you know, crazy badass with a lightsaber going up against the ATATs and whatnot. It really played well, but the one place where to me this episode failed was what Barrett said was spot on, which is Leia. Leia, and, and first off, this does give us a new year, right? The show started in 5 BBY, then we got Empire Day and Ezra's birthday, which told us, oh yeah, we're in 4 BBY now. All of the production lead-up to this and all the promotion talked about how Leia is 16, and this is three years before A New Hope, so we are now into the next year of Rebels, the third year of storytelling for the series. And Leia and Ezra are the same age. Ezra was born just a few days before she was. And she looks way older here mm-hmm. than a 16-year-old to me. I mean, she looks... She almost looks older than she is in A New Hope when she's 19. And the voice acting by Julie Dolan, to me, in no way sounded like Carrie Fisher. Like, she got certain nuances of pauses, but her voice and Carrie Fisher's voice in this era just don't match. Granted, Carrie Fisher in The Force Awakens voice doesn't match Carrie Fisher in the originals. Um, <laughs> but to me, it, it's a, it's striking that here's a new voice actress being brought in for Leia when Kat Tabor did an amazing job as Leia previously in things like The Force Unleashed. And it's almost like that transition, though, I think, from Matt Lucas to Matt Lanter. Matt Lucas was in a lot of things as Anakin and was spot on as Hayden Christensen, sort of the whiny voice. And then we got Matt Lanter, and at first it was like, this is Anakin's voice? But after years of the Clone Wars, we're kind of used to that as the voice of Anakin. I think it's that kind of juxtaposition here. We've got this person who we thought of as Leia's voice when it wasn't Carrie Fisher for a while, thanks to stuff like The Force Unleashed. Now they bring in somebody else. Of course it's going to sound different to our ears, and in this case, more different from Carrie Fisher than... And I think at least Cat Tabor did, but maybe they just didn't want to bring Cat Tabor in. Or maybe this person had an ongoing contract to be Leia since she's played Leia's voice in Star Wars Uprising 
and Disney mm. Infinity 3.0, alongside Cat Tabor, who did the voice of Padme in the game again. What did you guys think? I guess we got uh, Baron's thoughts. Uh, Mark Taylor, what do you think of this portrayal of Leia? See, I, I mean, I get where Baron's going for. The, the model looked good, but I kept going back and forth and looking at Ezra and her. And, you know, my daughter is, you know, 18 months older than my son, so she's a lot taller than my son. But I kept going back to, they're the same age. Like, yeah, okay, girls mature faster. But, like, Leia was, like, standing closer to the screen and was still taller than Ezra. I, I was really breaking down the height differences, the maturity. But I liked how they played with that at times. I didn't honestly know Ezra and Princess Leia were, like, around the same age. So hearing that now kind of makes it weird because Leia looked a lot older than Ezra, and then her voice just sounded a lot different. Yeah, it was definitely one of those things where we were talking about it as the episode played. Little things that I absolutely love, though, I love that they had the KOTOR hammerheads. They were the the ships that the Alderanian delegation was using, and the gravity locks. I'm like, dude, your ship just got the boot! <laughs> you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, Mark, because I can't remember. You know, there's so many articles out there that do Star Wars with rumors and stuff like that. But there was an article I read, and I wish I could give the writer the credit, but maybe some of the listeners read the same article. But they basically have said that um, in the article that Filoni and crew are basically making the Old Republic and the legends. They're bringing in more legends material than any of the books that are being written right now. You know, these ships are a good example of that how these are from the Old Republic ships, I believe. Yeah. And, I mean, there's a lot of things that they're doing that they're pulling in. I mean, we have rumors that Thrawn's going to be in here and stuff like that. So, I mean, I think that Filoni and crew have the gloves off. And I think I agree with you about the voice, Nathan and Mark. That I, One of the questions I asked myself was, is that voice right? She may have the cadence down, but is the voice right? And the character model was so spot on to me that it really didn't bother me that much. The one other thing that I absolutely loved in this episode was we watched how AT-ATs were deployed. I think for me, that's something I have been wondering ever since they first marched out onto the fields of Hoth. <laughs> there was a part towards the end. One of the people, when they were taking Princess Leia, was grabbing them and then told Zeb to make it look real. So he did something and hit Ezra and Kanan uh, in the face. And I thought that was just really funny because they were like, what the heck was that for? He's like, I was just trying to make it real. He told me to make it look real. That and uh, when Ezra did the old force pull and got the two blasters in one and yeah, one took one in the face, we thought that was pretty funny. Hey, that was a pretty good uh, Zeb. I've been working on it. I can, tell. I can tell it's better than my Australian. <laughs> All right, see, fan audio producers out there, you've got a Zeb here if you're going to do an audio drama on Rebels. The second episode that we're taking a look at this time is the one that promised to be another of these Sabine's background episodes that really didn't provide a lot of background on her, and that is The Protector of Concord Dawn. Essentially, the Rebels have found that it's just too hot trying to get to Lothal and back through the Lothal system and back with the Imperial activity that's increased, so they need to have another route. 
and it's suggested that they go through the Concord Dawn system, which at this point is being controlled not by the Empire or by the Rebels, but by a group known as the Protectors, which are characterized as essentially a warrior faction that's the enemy of the Death Watch that are still loyal to the original Mandalorian culture. And they're led, in this case, by a man by the name of Finn Rao, the so-called Protector among the Protectors. Unfortunately, their first attempt to try to make contact with them leads to the realization that they are apparently siding with the Empire, and several A-Wings get attacked, a couple of them get destroyed, Hera winds up covering for them, but is injured gravely right before her A-Wing is able to escape into hyperspace. Sabine decides to essentially get some payback, whereas Kanan thinks that they can somehow make a deal with the Protectors through diplomacy. Kanan and Chopper go on what's supposed to be a mission just for the two of them to go meet with the Protectors on one of the moons of Concord Dawn, but Sabine stows away. And we wind up with a situation that basically puts them into the middle of the camp of the Protectors. Sabine has a chance to sort of revel in her heritage and call out Finn Rao directly. Doesn't wind up killing him, though she does wind up winning in a quick, quick draw duel. And in the confrontation that follows they're able to capture Finn Rao and basically hold him prisoner. And because the Mandalorians, the Protectors, don't want the Empire coming in to crawl all over their system, they have to basically pretend everything is okay, and in the meantime, allow the Rebels to fly through their space. So they have essentially what is not really an ally, but at least someone who at this point is not going to betray them as they use their space. Again, let's go around the table on initial thoughts of this episode. Mark? Well, this one, I thought it was strong, but not too strong. I had a lot of high hopes for it. And I think that's where the whole not too strong angle came in. Uh, you know, there, I have some thoughts on this as we get into it. But yeah, I mean, it had potential. It didn't quite make the potential, but it also didn't leave me feeling deflated. Taylor? Well, I like this one a little bit because of Sabine's somewhat background and how she, like, acted like she was sticking up for herself and Hera, and then she, like, oh, she ended up blowing up the ships. But there was, one of my family members said before they blew up all the ships, there was one ship that she didn't put a thing on, so that made me questioning, did they take that one, or? That was the one what? that she let Fen get in. Oh. Yeah, it was all on, it was all on point. <laughs> Barrent? Okay, first of all, Am I missing something with Lothal? I mean, I know I may have asked this question before, but why is Lothal so important? If, they, they, if they've said it, I must have missed it. I don't know why they keep trying to go to Lothal. I'm not sure what's going on with that. Maybe you guys can help me. So one of the things I really liked about this episode was getting a little bit more information on the Mandalorians. I thought it was very interesting that we have these different factions of Mandalorians. Something that I think what was it, Christy Golden, who wrote all those Order 66 books and Karen stuff like Travis. that? Karen Travis. Karen Travis. Yeah, Karen he's Tra definitely had a true Mandalorian feel to him. Exactly. And I think that anybody who had a little problem with the Mandalorians being pacifists are, I think Filoni and crew are definitely trying to fix that. Or not fix that, but give a little bit more to the story. Like, they're just not pacifists. Because... In the Clone Wars, they're all pacifists, the whole planet, or at least that's what they suggested what was happening with the planet. Now we find out that Death Watch was considered traitors, that you have all of these factions of Mandalorians, of warriors, of fighters, 
And I like that. And even Rex makes a comment and says that, you know, the warriors, the fighters from this clan are what we brought over to help train the clone warrior, the clone troopers. And I think that's the first time that they've actually said that, that Mandalorians have come in to train the clone troopers because in the Clone Wars, you know, we got, what was it, Brick? And, yeah. you know, and we saw all of the, their, their how they kind of got trained there with no mention of, of Mandalorians at all. So I really like that. I mean, that's something that it can open up. Um, well, that's that aspect of, of like you were talking about how Filoni and them are bringing legend stuff over because, yeah, th- those references, I kept thinking Cal Scarada. This is totally, yep. in a mm-hmm. sense, Cal Scarada's group. I mean, granted, Cal Scarada is strictly legends, but this is a canon equivalent, which to me, that was that was definitely a high point. Huge, huge. You know, Sabine didn't get her jetpack, but not all of them were wearing jetpacks. They kind of had a cross between a Mandalorian armor and what, like an AT-AT driver or something like that. It, so it was kind of cool. Sabine is definitely Bo-Katan's daughter. I think she basically said that. She's Clan Vizsla, and she's named Sabine. Bo-Katan's sister was Satine. I think Sabine is Bo-Katan's daughter. I think they put the cat out of the bag on that one. And one more thing I want to mention was Chopper had the foulest mouth in this episode. <laughs> and Taylor... I don't know if your father will let me, but I wrote down a few things what I thought Chopper said. I don't know if any of you guys caught it, but he was just going off on this one. (laughs) Did you catch any of that? No. (laughs) Barrett tends to think that he's cussing every time he makes it that. Well, before I give my initial thoughts on the episode, then Barrett, are there ones that you can say without saying them? So I'm not on the, the, the Chopper sound or the bleep button. Yeah. Chopper says one time when they're, when Chopper's going with, with Kanan and they're alone chopper says what the f are you talking about and <laughs> and or no you don't know what the f you're talking about is what chopper says and then Kanan says i know what i'm talking about <laughs> and then uh chopper says something you don't know s you know i was like that is exactly what this what this droid is saying i don't know how anybody else can see it any other way but he was kind of going off he just submit a, a question for rebels recon how do you guys work with this droid one other thing I want to mention, the last thing, was that we did not get a jetpack from Sabine, but we did get a lot of her character. And I think this is the first time where they've kind of given Sabine a killer instinct. I think before we've known that she's liked to blow things up, but I've kind of always assumed that she blew up things that people weren't in them. Here, they've kind of given her a, an edge that she likes to kill people. I mean, kill things. I mean, she says in a couple of things, I didn't kill anything today. I thought you'd be happy. And I didn't know she had that killer instinct. And so I thought that was interesting that they're kind of swerving towards that for her character development. Yeah. You know, this is an episode that I was kind of excited to see because we really didn't get much of Sabine's background back in Blood Sisters, where we thought we were going to get it. And to me, this was an episode that started really strong and ended as a mess. I mean, it started out with, you know, this is why we have to be there. This is why we have to strike the deal. Here's a little bit about them. Oh, by the way, Mandalore has been occupied since the end of the Clone Wars. Awesome. Oh, yeah, we had Mandalorians helping train the clones, and these protectors were there, and we found out that the protectors, uh, we find out in the episode, actually save Depa Bilaba and Kanan during the Clone Wars in an issue of the Kanan comic that came out the exact same day this episode aired, which is brilliant synchronization. That said, where the hell were they? 
Really? The, the, the protectors were around during the Clone Wars. Aside from that Kanan comic in this, where were they? Because in canon, we've never had a mention of them before. We know there were the true Mandalorians who broke away and the Death Watch who broke away from them and all that stuff in Legends. But this is the first time it's really being addressed here. I hope that they'll give us a little bit more background so that we have a coherent background now for the uh, the Mandalorians. We found out that Sabine is Clan Wren of House Vizsla. And I got to take issue with the idea that she's Bo-Katan's daughter. I think she probably should be Bo-Katan's daughter. That would make sense. That would be cool. But she's Clan Wren House Vizsla. Her mom was House Vizsla, she says. And Satine's family is House Cries. So unless she's able to switch her affiliation from House Cries to House Vizsla when she joins the Death Watch, I don't see how that makes sense for Sabine to be the daughter. But that's more background that we still don't really have. We got this great beginning, the, the great emotional performance for Sabine when Hera gets injured. You really feel her anger. And the fact that she does talk about, you know, killing people certainly does up the darkness for her in this angle of revenge and not being sure what's going to happen when she winds up face-to-face -face with the protectors. Then we get to the second half, and to me, it's really, really rushed. We've got an episode where basically they show up, there's a brief bit of conversation between Kanan and Finn Rao. Love the reference there, right? Finn, Rao, Finn, Shisa, and all that from uh, Legends. And Sabine's trying to set the explosive to blow up the ship, and she gets caught. And she's immediately, you know, you know, I, I'm Clan Wren House Vizsla. I made this armor. I invoke single combat. But apparently she doesn't say who she's going to invoke single combat with until a few minutes later when Finn finally comes out. Because then she calls out Finn. So she basically tells the, the Mandalorians, you know, single combat! And they're sitting there going, with who? And she hasn't said a word. It, it's a very fast wrap-up to the episode. Um, you get this sense of, well, you see now, now what was it, the, the line at the end? You know, we're only friends because we have to be. You're not friends. You're not allies. You're in chains. You're a prisoner. He didn't just get yeah. brought aboard as an unwilling participant in the rebellion. He's in shackles. And they even reiterate again when Hera talks to Sabine about, you know, we're taking prisoners now. Yes, that he is a prisoner. And the logic of, well, you know, we're not gonna gonna do anything for our warrior culture and just have somebody else take over. I'm a prisoner, so shh, keep it hush-hush. Don't tell the Empire. It'll be okay. I just, the, what, the, the protectors aren't gonna try to rescue him? The protectors aren't going to try to give some kind of revenge? And what is up with this single combat thing anyway? It's single combat that sounds like it should be to the death. There's no moment where they say it's going to happen. It actually happens in the middle of a conversation, and instead of direct combat like with Maul and Vizsla back in the Clone Wars, all we get was a really fast quick draw. She pulls out the blaster, shoots his out of his hand. All of a sudden, somehow it's done, but no, instead of killing him, you can blow up the ships and that is equivalent somehow within the warrior culture? Makes no sense. It could, but it needs a lot of rationalization and a lot of trying to add in facts that aren't present within the episode to make it all work. I think visually... It was cool to see these Mandalorians. It's cool to hear about them and see how they fit into the grand scheme of things. But this is an episode that had a really strong buildup. And just to me, it felt like that back end was, oh crap, we've only got like 10 minutes left. We got to zip through this. And if stuff doesn't necessarily completely make sense, it's okay. We've already asked the audience to go just go with it plenty of times. You know, be not concerned with how. They'll be okay. 
Yeah, that buildup, man. I mean, so the space battles in this are rocking. That was something I really enjoyed. The way the Mandalorian ships had their wings spinning at first, I was like, why are they doing that? But eventually I kind of saw that it created a circle of fire. So I'm like, okay, that kind of makes sense. But the opening, you know, we see Hera doing her pilot thing. That was a great set of scenes. But when Hera comes through the blast, her A-wings all tore up. And Sabine looks over and she goes, I see her. I see her, Kanan, and it's bad. I mean, that line choked me up, man. I was just like, oh, my God, dude. Are, like, are they taking Hera out for a couple episodes? Like, I seriously started to worry. Uh, the fact that they brought in Kevin McKidd, who plays the voice of Dr. Hunt on Grey's Anatomy. Uh, he was uh, Fen. Fen's voice. I love that. I like that they're bringing in more character voices that I recognize from other shows and stuff. But yeah, the whole House Vizsla. Now, are we to take it that Sabine is pre Vizsla's daughter or granddaughter or niece? I mean, that's clearly that's the the connection there. But do we know how far away she's related to pre? We don't even know if she's related to Pre. They describe in the Rebels Recon that basically you've got like a king or a monarch of some kind, like a duchess in this case with Sabine, or with uh, Satine. And below her, among the advisors and such, there's the protectors that are like the queen's guard, king's guard type of people. And then it's divided up into essentially these houses, which are these large groups, and inside the houses are individual clans. So you could be House Vizsla, but not actually be... Vizsla by family name, just like, I mean, Sabine is Rin. She's Clan Rin. That is her biological family, theoretically. The broader house she swears allegiance to, or that her mother did, is Vizsla. It's all very Game of Thrones. Oh, see, and the only other thing I had an issue with, or maybe it was a Legends reference that I wasn't catching, was Concord Dawn itself. Like, I don't know if they were trying to make it look like Malachor 5, but the fact that it had zero spin and was blown up the way it was, I kept thinking, like, how could anybody survive on that planet? Like, shouldn't that planet have been trying to spin itself back into normal? I mean, it had a zero spin, and therefore, you know, the bottom chunk of the planet being blown out, all the rocks were kind of hanging. That's a very J.J. Abrams space scene kind of thing like you'd saw that type of planet in the opening credits of the star trek but that was a moment where i was like really like i don't know like rebels is playing real fast and loose when it comes to the physics of space <laughs> well they did say in one of the rebels recons what was the term oh it's not synchronicity simultaneity i think was the word that was used mm. as they tried to explain how for instance in the force awakens you can have a planet destroyed that's far away from the planet that you're on and yet still see the explosion in real time and how, you know, it just Star Wars doesn't work by the same rules of physics that yeah. we have. So it makes perfect sense that they can do something like the planet. I did like the, the Concord Dawn reference here. It's very different than where we've seen Concord Dawn in Legends before, but they changed a lot of what was what Mandalore looked like and took what we thought of as Mandalore's ecosystem and made that the moon and named it Concordia, a nice reference to Concord Dawn. And now, of course, Concord Dawn is back. I didn't realize it until you mentioned Kevin McKidd. I didn't even realize it was Kevin McKidd doing the voice. I know him best from Rome, but it's funny. What do you call the protectors of Concord Dawn in Legends, journeyman, protector, mm -hmm. blah, 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 like Jaster Mareel and stuff, right? What yeah. show did Kevin McKidd headline as the star until it was canceled by NBC? Journeyman. <laughs> kid you not. I kid you not. One of the things that this episode did, too, was one of the things that episode seven did real well 
is that there's a lot of gray area here. You know, you mentioned that they're taking prisoners, which is kind of iffy. You know, we got Guantanamo Bay open, but we're supposed to be the good guys. But we got these guys here who are locked up. You know, it's kind of going into something like that. They In the beginning of the episode, they were deciding whether they were going to have diplomacy or they were going to have show brute force. And Commander Santo wanted to go in there and not do any diplomacy. And Kanan kind of convinced him that diplomacy was the way to go. But I like the fact that there are gray areas now. Like the good guys aren't just the good guys anymore, you know, and the bad guys just aren't the bad guys. And we're going to see that coming up in a couple more episodes where there are some gray areas out there. You know, just because you're a good guy doesn't mean that you're not doing any killing. You're not doing things that could be seen as wallowing in the filth with the with the bad guys and this is kind of starting to rear its ugly head right there you know are we going to go in there and just kill everybody or are we going to go in there and try to talk to somebody and i find it very interesting that commander santo his first as a good guy his first impulse was to go over there and just take it and i thought that is very similar to the empire's thinking and they got very lucky with the convenience factor with Kanan. I mean, like the, the kidnapping of Fan was cool, but had it not been for the crafty writers to go, okay, and now he's just going to cave like a house of cards and go, yes, you guys can do whatever you want because I'm your prisoner. That was way too convenient. I think that was probably what hurt this episode the most in my eyes. You know, and I guess as the last comment on this to close it out, just to, to give you a sense of just how I don't think the writers really had an entire plan for that in the episode guide on StarWars.com, they don't say that it's because he's a prisoner that he folds. It's that by seeing the actions of Kanan and Sabine not killing anyone and such, he sees that they have their own honor code and blah, blah, blah. So he changes his mind and is going to help, which is not where in the episode and doesn't even remotely reflect the scene in which he tells his people to back off. It, it, he, that would make him an ally, not a prisoner. I don't know where the episode guide was going with that. <laughs> I don't think the it was episode guide people saw the episode this time. It was trying to Disney-fy uh, a very adult theme is what it was because they're taking prisoners. I couldn't see it going either way. He had to cooperate with them as far as I think Disney is concerned or else they would have to torture him to get him to cooperate. He had to just fold. And I think that was very convenient to keep it kitty-like. Look, sometimes we're going to have to torture these people. We're going to make them build a wall pay for it, torture them, because you know what? We have a galaxy. We have would a I, galaxy. Would I torture people? Oh, yeah, I'd bring, not only would I torture them, I'd, I'd make up some extra torture. I'd, I'd, I'd torture the torture. We, we need more cowbell. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that brings us to our third episode of these six. A little bit more of a mystical episode this time, but also one that ties into the background uh, and the heritage of one of our characters, Legends of the Lasat. After getting a tip from, of all people, Hondo Onaka, who has basically sold out a pair of Lasat to the Empire, the crew of the Ghost arrive to basically save the day and rescue them as the Empire arrives. After a few instances of Hondo trying to essentially help them and make a profit by helping the Empire and back and forth and back and forth, they're able to escape. And it turns out that these two Lasats, Gron and Chavia, they are essentially survivors just like Zeb was. Zeb at one point had said he's the last of his kind, and we thought maybe he was joking, but it does seem that Zeb really did kind of believe he was the last of the Lasats that were still alive. We find out that he was the captain of the Lasat Honor Guard, 
And Gron served under him, though in such a capacity that Zeb doesn't really remember him. Zeb really hasn't been thinking and talking much about his time as the captain of the Honor Guard because to him, it's the fact that he wound up being knocked out during a pivotal point of the battle with the Empire that in part led to the Empire being able to wipe out his people, that he failed his people at the time. And thanks to Ezra's nudging, he won't fail these two. The older woman essentially is a mystic, believing in the Lassant version of the Force, Ashla, based, of course, on earlier draft names of it for Star Wars, and, of course, the way that we saw it in, among other things, Dawn of the Jedi. And in talking about the Ashla, she says that they will be able to find their long-lost, long-prophesied home, Lyrasan, uh, when it's guided by the warrior, the child, and the fool, and all their roles being played. And after a ceremony, a mystic ritual, in which Zeb turns out to essentially be the child, he's able to use his bow rifle in an ancient configuration to essentially pinpoint where this planet is. When they get there, they find that it's a collapsed star cluster and they can't get through, but that same charged-up bow rifle is able to somehow interface with the ghost, guide it through the star cluster, and provide this energy cascading around the ship that protects it from all the things that wipe out, among other things, pursuing TIE fighters as they make their way through, only to finally find that when they get to Lyrasan, there are already Lasats there because, no, Lasan was not the original homeworld of the Lasats. Lyrasan was, and Zeb will now, anytime he encounters any other Lasat survivors, lead them home per the prophecy. A mystical episode, a Zeb-centric episode, and one with some, some interesting moments. Mark? Mortis? Mortis? Is that you? I, I, the whole Ashla thing, like I got excited for a moment and then it went, what the hell is this? What is going on? And then it gets to the end and Hera's like, now that we've been here with the ghost, we can come back whenever we want. BS, you had, you had a, a Lassant using the, the Ashla and two Jedi backing him up. How in the hell is the ship going to duplicate that? Oh, I don't know what the hell I watched, but this one was weird. Taylor, now that your father is calm. I actually really like this one because of the spirit ritual. And then there was some humor after Zeb got irritated that he found out that he was the child. Ezra was like, you're kind of acting like a child. That was good. That yeah. was good. I, I have to admit, the humor between those two was probably on point in this episode yeah. more than all because it was a Zeb-focused one. Other than that, those were my favorite things in this. But I thought this episode was strong. Barrett? What? Okay. This was a weird episode. Okay? This was weirder than Mortis. Because Mortis at least had Obi-Wan and Anakin and Ahsoka. You know? <laughs> Zeb has been a character who they've kind of hinted around. You know, he's the last Lassat. We find to this in this episode that he was actually a high-ranking a high-ranking member of their warriors where he actually had to he feels he was responsible for all the Lasats, but he was definitely responsible for the royalty, you know, for the leaders of Lasat. And I find that very interesting, you know. And getting a little background on Zeb this time, I couldn't help but notice or think back to, you know, this is what Chewbacca was supposed to look like. Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I'm glad that they're giving him this background. I'm glad that they're making him important. 
that he's just not some alien that Kanan found. I mean, that would make it bad, him a bad character, but I like that they are developing him. And we'll find out the reason why they're developing him, because he's going to have a very powerful episode coming up. A couple of things I had a problem with. So Zeb is the child, the fool, and the warrior? Yeah, that was a cool part, though. I, I was questioning, too. Okay, well, I wasn't sure. And I'm like, is Hondo the fool? Simple yeah. and selfish? He would lead? You know, I was trying to figure out who these people were. She, she kept it where, you know, it was like, okay, each one of you are playing a role. And when Zeb started to throw, a, you know, the conniption fit about it, she was basically like, and at some point you're going to play all of these roles. And when you accept that, you're going to be who you are. And that was kind of like his Zen moment. Like I, I thought that was kind of cool because... You know, he did mention after, you know, he lost everything when he was captain of the Royal Guard, the Honor Guard, that that was when Kanan came to him. And it kind of gives you that, you know, that he's the lost puppy kind of moment, you know, that Kanan saw something special in him and he's going to rise to it. And when she breaks that down to him, you kind of see a light in his eyes. Like he finally figures it out that he is all these things. It was kind of like the Ganner Rysode moment. You know, it's okay to play act because you're play acting what it is to be a Jedi. Well, in this case, he is the last Lasat. He's the one, he's the child of Lasat. He's going to lead them there. And he is the warrior. I mean, I, I, when she broke that down, I was like, Oh, okay. Cause up until then I'm like, wait, he's really the child. Like that's kind of weird. Yes. And I like the fact that Ashlyn, the force, you know, that makes sense. They finally said it, you know, Ashlyn, the force are the same. So my question is, is, is Zeb force sensitive? Because we know they're kind of making it to where lightsabers are kind of have to do with force pe- force sensitive people. You know, it wasn't kind of like that before. It was just kind of the weapon they used. But now lightsabers are special to force sensitive users, or at least that's what the impression I got from episode seven. Here, Zeb's weapon, and they kind of alluded to it before that his weapon is kind of special, but we see him transform it into something that can take control over a ship magically or through the force. So is Zeb force sensitive that was that was the same question i got because they were doing the chanting and stuff and ezra's chiming in and then when they were doing all that stuff i was in the same boat i'm like clearly okay they're using the force but i think the thing that i love the most Hera goes i don't know how but the hyperdrive is activating and i'm looking at my daughter i'm like no no really (laughs) Hera's like pointing out what everyone's thinking what the hell is going on that was the Maz Kanata scene of it. A question for another time. They just kind of wrote it off. <laughs> but, yeah. but I didn't I, like the old lady. I didn't yeah, like I'm, the old I'm lady. I'm with you on that. That you didn't like the old lady? Because I didn't yeah. like the old lady. I don't know why I didn't like her. I, I should have liked her. I just didn't like her. I didn't like the guy either. I was just thinking in my head, like, okay, these Lasats could have been gone. We didn't need them. We could have gotten a a, a scroll or something that would have <laughs> given Zeb the map or or how to do it. And you know, he his his force sensitive power could have been awakened. You know, she had a who I, look to her that I didn't care for. I'm like, she's too cartoony. She reminded me of the Ewoks cartoon. Yes. That's yes. who she looked like, right? It was yes. the witch from the Ewoks cartoon. 
talking about there were more- a couple little references again, you know, in Barry, you brought, you brought it out. Filoni and them are, are touching on legends and that star cluster. I don't know if anyone else, but the maw immediately came to mind. I was like, okay, we're having that moment where Kip Duran is, is flying them out and through the maw. And, and which which brought up the question, you know, are the Lasats force sensitive to a degree? I I'm in the camp of I think so. I think that whether they're going to say, you know, the Ashla is their version of the force, uh, I I think by saying that it, it makes it even more dangerous. That yes, you were using the force, a version of the force. No, it's the force. They're just calling it something else. It was definitely the that was the mortis aspect though, because I was I was scratching my head so much. But one thing that jumped up to me was Hondo. Like, you know, people complain about this being the Clone Wars season two or, or, or version two, but Hondo seems like a totally different character. I mean, I was really noticing how he's a lone wolf right now versus the other one. He was kind of like the, the leader of the a major group. It's like a total shift in his character. Honda is a totally different character. You said it. I was thinking the exact same thing as watching him. You know, in the Clone Wars, Honda was my one of my favorite characters, man. They had set him up to be kind of Boba Fett's mentor. That he knew Jango Fett. He has he had Slave One at the end of the last time we saw the Clone Wars. So where is Slave One? Why is Hondo kind of this messenger boy almost? He's doing all the dirty work himself. It's like his whole character is changed. When we saw him in the Clone Wars, he is a leader. He is a survivor. We know that people will follow Hondo because he's smart. The only sliver of Hondo's old self came out when he is dealing with the Empire. He's dealing with the Empire kind of like how he dealt with the Jedi, where when Ezra double-crosses him and says that he's not going to get paid, Hondo gets so excited. I'm so proud of you. I've never <laughs> had a, a, you know, a student learn so quickly. I mean, that was the old Hondo. And I don't know if it had to do with the voice actor, who's the same voice actor, and he was just like, you know, I'm, I'm going to bring in some old Hondo. And I think that was his decision because I think they're moving Hondo towards this character that's I don't know what kind of character he is. He doesn't look exact. He doesn't look the same. He's not acting like a leader, you know. Like I, I don't know. Honda's confusing me. He, it, it's it's all confusing me. And now, kind of like he's kind of taking Ezra under his wing. I want to know where Slave One is. I want to know why Honda hasn't. There's got to be pirates out there. You know, that followed him, that are still around. Not all of them died when Darth Maul took siege of their camp. So why is Hondo... It's like it's almost like seeing Boba Fett... It's almost like seeing Jabba the Hutt as being an AT-AT pilot or working in the cantina or something. He's, you know what I'm he's saying? He's Jack Sparrow at the beginning of Curse of the Black Pearl. <laughs> yes, he's Jack Sparrow when we first knew him. And now he's just Whack Sparrow. <laughs> Wow. See, you know, now I feel for Jonathan. I apologize to Jonathan for all the times we got derailed before he gave his initial thoughts on an episode. <coughs> uh, but no, I think you guys raised some good points. I, I thought this episode was pretty good. I thought it was a little bit weird, but I think Star Wars always gets a little bit weird when you get into the idea of the Force as magic. It was the same way with the Night Sisters, and I think you guys are right on point in making the comparison of this to Ewoks. I don't know that I would necessarily compare Chava to Morag. But, you know, that idea of, well, we're going to do some magic here and we're just going to write it off as this culture's manifestation of the Force. Uh, They really were talking about that in the Rebels Recon, about how they wanted to make this 
a chance to highlight the idea that there are different forced traditions, just like there are all kinds of different religions in the real world and so forth. The the whole, you are actually the child and the warrior and the fool all throughout your life felt to me kind of like a cop-out, because theoretically that should mean that anybody can do it, because everybody, what's the, what's a line from Shakespeare about all the world's a stage and everybody plays many parts with exits and entrances and all? Uh, it just, it seems to me... That was a little bit odd, and the whole prophecy idea was a little bit odd, but it worked well enough. I would love to know how the Force slash the staff and the mixture of the two and all this and, and the the little uh, glowy bit in Chava's cane when they came together somehow created the ability for the ship to be automatically guided through to the destination. But whatever, you know, it's 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 mysticism. It's kind of what they've gotten into with this. As soon as you start dabbling into saying that it's magic as the Force, you can do pretty much anything and just say, well, the Force moves in mysterious ways and, and kind of write it all off. Although I'm with Mark in that I'm wondering how they get back. You know, oh, we ha we were able to get through. Now we can get out no matter what, and we can come back anytime that we want. How? How? You know, are you going around the cluster? Because it seems like it was in the cluster and you needed that energy going around the ship to be able to get through because those TIE fighters tried to follow you exactly and got blown up. Uh, so there's there's some logical issues with the episode, but broadly speaking, I thought it was all right. And it's nice that Zeb is finally getting a little bit more depth because for the most part, he's been the buffoon of the series. He's been the comic relief right alongside, to some degree, Chopper in the series, and he just needs to be a fully fleshed out strong character alongside the others. I would argue that he is probably the weakest characterized character of the group until this season finally started in these six episodes, giving him a little bit more to it. Well, in that maze, and I like the fact that, that, you know, the one lady called it the maze, it was a great anvil for when Callus shows up as the hammer. You know, you're like, oh, man, how are they going to get out? And the music that they played when they were stuck in the vortex was like this creepy violin. I don't know, man. There was something about there was like a couple of these episodes. The music was really on point during certain scenes. And that was one that really jumped out. I mean, up until they did the whole weird, you know, charging up the ghost and running through it. I was like, how are they going to get out of this? Uh, and, and one last complaint I have is, what is up with blast doors? I've really been paying attention to this since Han Solo uses a blaster on the control panels to lock them. Then in The Force Awakens, he uses it on the on it to open them. Is it literally just you just shoot the blast pad and it'll do whatever you want? I mean, what's the well, point anymore? Remember, it's not a blast pad. It's not called a blast door because you're supposed to blast it. It's a blast door because it's supposed to protect you from a blast. It's like a bulkhead. Somehow, because we see them being shot to be open and shot to be closed with somebody shooting the controls, people are thinking that it's blast as in shoot it and it opens and closes. No, it's just <laughs> a freaking door. It's a bulkhead. They call it a blast door just like a blast door on anything in our world. Oh, they just, uh, yeah. Josh, yeah, they're not using them physics right. I'm like, wait, when Han shoots it to keep it locked, that makes sense. But when he shoots it and the door opens, I'm like, what the hell? Maybe, maybe it's just a safety feature. Uh, I guess the last thing I would add before we move on to the next one is that I do appreciate Hondo's use here. It's, again, kind of the Clone Wars 2.0 thing. But if they seeded him in a while back with the idea being that he can now be sort of a quest giver, so to speak, in gaming parlance, that every once in a while he can pop up and be the impetus for them to go on a new mission or have a new adventure... I think that works for him. Don't overuse him, but use him whenever it makes sense. Kind of like Rex. Rex showing up very briefly back in Protector of Concord Dawn. He will show up again in The Honorable Ones. But Rex really isn't in these episodes. And Ahsoka isn't in any of these six. They're doing the whole using sparingly thing. 
But before we can get to seeing Rex back again and seeing more about Zeb in The Honorable Ones, we've got two more to see. We have first, The Call. The Call essentially is the story of what happens when the Ghost crew is almost out of fuel and they need more fuel for the fleet for Phoenix Squadron, especially since they don't have a planet as a base anymore. They are a free-roaming group of ships now, kind of like the Rebel fleet uh, leading up to the Battle of Endor. So they go into this asteroid field trying to find where the mining guild has set up a mining operation for Clauzon 36. And along the way, they run into basically weird space whales with tentacles called Pergils. And Hera notes that there are all kinds of legends about them, legends that they were what inspired human beings and, and other sentients to first travel through hyperspace, jumping from system to system, and how the Pergils are also a navigation hazard and whatnot, and all kinds of ships being lost because of them. So despite the legends, she is, is concerned about the fact that they are there. Turns out the Pergils, though, seem to be at least sentient or semi-sentient, and lead them into the asteroid field, heading in the general direction of the mining operation. The mining operation sends out a couple of modified TIE fighters to fight the ghost, and in tracking back the TIE fighters, they find the station. Unfortunately, their plan to simply go down, grab the fuel, and blow up all this gas coming out from the center of the asteroid directly underneath where the mining station is, isn't going to work because Ezra realizes that there's a connection between the Pergils and the gas, and he doesn't want to harm the Pergils. Again, his connection to animals and such. They wind up working out another plan, steal the fuel that they need. The Pergils help turn the tide against the mining operation, even saving Ezra at one point when he falls off of a platform. And finally, as the episode ends, they've got the fuel that they need for themselves and hopefully for some of Phoenix Squadron, and they watch as the Pergils, now filled up with this gas that they've ingested, leap to hyperspace. Yes, the space whales can jump to hyperspace themselves, not only giving us an interesting new creature, but a new origin for the development of hyperspace in canon. Mark? This one was interesting. It, it had an out of gas from Firefly kind of feel, or, or as I like to say, Ezra's Jason Solo or Ezra's Gandalf uh, kind of feels to it. You know, there, there was some good moments for some humor in there, but overall I felt like it was a fluff and filler kind of episode. Um, you know, it, it did serve to show some points for Ezra and, and it, I, I think, puts the nail in the coffin for Barrett's theory. I mean, if any point that, that Sabine's going to bust out a jetpack, it's going to be when she jumps out of a ship down towards an asteroid and no jetpack. I was kind of like really bummed by that. I'm like, come on, if any is seen, this would be the scene. She should have the jetpack. And I don't know. So uh, yeah, fluff and filler for me. Taylor. Well, I kind of like this episode, but there was like a question did the purge whales need the uh, loose stuff to, like, energy? Yeah. It was oh. food, and that's how they were able to jump out later. Okay. It was because, like, Ezra had mentioned that they were stopping at those, like, rest stops along I-5 kind of thing. Uh, I kept on thinking that it was, like, CO2 or something like that. <laughs> so I'm all like, what? Bert? You know, it's interesting to have Taylor on the show because these episodes are not for us old men. They're for kids. And when she's confused on one of the main plots of the episode that this was actually their energy and they're, and they're hooked up to it, it's not some random gas, that's their target audience. They're supposed to be able to explain that. So 
this episode, you know, when we have episodes like this, I've tried to get out of whether I like it or whether I don't like it, because I think most people wouldn't like this episode. I try to look at episodes like this as what are they doing to further my understanding of the Star Wars universe, of this universe I love? What have they done? They've given us an origin for hyperspace, which I don't think we've had before. I mean, definitely not canon. I think that's what you mentioned, uh, Nathan. Mm -hmm. They've given us something in Legends, kind of, but nothing really, you know, the definitive. Now we have a definitive thing that, you know, that people observed that these whales could do this or whatever they're called, but they're whales. And now we have a definitive starting point. Also, the develop the character development of Ezra being able to communicate with these creatures. And that's a, I, I, you know, that's one of the things I like. Not that he can communicate with the creatures, it's that they're keeping the fact that certain Jedi can do certain things very well. And that's why certain Jedis are more powerful. Not because of their connection to the Force, it's because they, certain Jedis, certain techniques come natural to them. And this is so new that... You know, he could talk to animals. We've kind of seen this in episode two where Anakin did that to that bull creature in the fighting arena mm-hmm. where he kind of did that. So they've kind of touched on that. And Anakin was able to do that because he's so powerful. I like the fact that Ezra's able to do that. But other than that, there's so many other questions about this episode of what's going on. How are How is Ezra able to take off his helmet and not be able to breathe, but they don't have to cover up any of their skin? You know, their, yeah. their helmets are not pressurized on their necks. And if they were, it would cut off their circulation. It would give cortoid pressure and they wouldn't be able to breathe. So, I mean, these kind of episodes bring up more questions than they serve a purpose to. I mean, it's fluff. Why Why not bring in Gascon in this one? You know what I'm saying? That's how I'm thinking of it. <laughs> oh, ouch. <laughs> it, why not? You know, it, it serves no purpose except for the fact that it gives us a background on hyperspace travel and... Ezra's getting more powerful in the force. Yeah. It was that Ezra angle that I really felt played up. Like that was the main thing. Cause Kanan had a line where he's like, that's so interesting. Like we should be listening to Ezra. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. This really felt like it was a filler episode. I mean, it, it gave us more of Ezra with the animals. Okay. But, we kind of already knew that. And, oh, they're going and getting fuel. And you could say, well, this is a necessary episode because you know that they're going to need fuel. So, of course, we have to see how they get it. But not really. I mean, th- this this trope of, well, we're out of gas. We're out of fuel. We're out of food. We're out of this. We're out of that. It's just one of those convenient ways to kick off a story, kind of like bringing in Hondo and having him give them a job. So it just kind of felt like, oh, we have no reason to believe that they were running out of fuel before because we see them doing all kinds of flying before. Now, all of a sudden, they're out of gas. Isn't that convenient to kick off this particular story? It is interesting in that it gives us the pergil. I'll give it that. For the most part, it feels like complete fluff. But we get the pergil and this new sort of beginnings of hyperdrive thing, the idea that humans are inspired or sentients are inspired by the pergil as they see them jumping from system to system. I find that interesting because that's not really something we've seen much as a an adaptation of actual creatures as opposed to an adaptation of technology. Like in Legends... You wind up having the Rakatans able to harness, essentially, uh, force 
energy to power vessels for travel and whatnot that eventually leads to, among other things, the development of the hyperdrive for other cultures and the development of lightsabers that aren't force sabers, that don't use the force uh, to have to be there to be activated and such. So it's interesting they're giving us this new origin. They've kind of dabbled in it before. Now Canon's getting a chance to dabble in it. It's a little weird. But you can see early societies finding inspiration with animals. It happens in real life. But beyond that, I mean, just, it's goofy. And, and we've got, what's the guy's name? Yushin. We have yet another new alien that's provided with no species name, no cultural background at all. We just know that apparently he and the Rodians can breathe in the clouds on 36 and it's okay, whereas the humans can't. And the guy looks like, what happens if you flatten out the head of an Ithorian and stick a couple of uh, uh, Tootsie Rolls or Fruit Loops onto his face? To get that done, it's... It's a very strange design, though I believe it was based on concept art. So, and just all around, not a very satisfying episode. I don't want to say it was a bad episode, because it was alright. But it felt like filler, and it almost screamed it by the time we got to the end. And I know the end is supposed to be kind of a Peter Pan slash, you know, Star Trek 6, you know, or second start of the right and straight on until morning. It's a, I say we follow the Pergil. Lady, isn't your entire point of being here, the fact that your ships are all pretty much out of fuel and they're just as screwed as you were coming into this and instead of going straight back to them with the fuel, you're just gonna follow the Pergil? What? Yeah, that's nice. Nice cutesy Disney ending that doesn't make any logical sense whatsoever. Thank you. I don't know, just an episode that if it hadn't existed, we would never have missed it. You know, you say that, Nathan, and I thought that too, but if there's one thing that Filoni has been very constant and consistent about, is what I'm saying, consistent, is he really doesn't leave hanging chads. You know what I mean? Everything he's been doing is there's been a purpose for it. So I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that there is a reason why we met these Pergil, that we're going to see them again. I don't think they're going to be thrown away. That Whether we're going to see these characters, what was the character's name, the new character that's a cross between kind of Akbar and a... Ithorian. You should. Tootsie Roll. Yeah, you should. Tootsie Roll Man. Yeah. He didn't even, to me, that character didn't even seem like he was fully rendered. <laughs> he almost seemed like he was blurry. Like when they do shots of Hera, you could see the pores and the freckles on Hera's face. When they yeah. showed this guy come up, he, it, it was almost like they smeared Vaseline on him. Like he was like the ugly cousin or something. <laughs> you smear Vaseline on the lens. You don't really want people to look at him. He was like unfinished. Kind of like how the story was. Oh, that's great. I thought there was a funny line that Ezra said when he's sitting there, he's he's like channeling the force. The Purgles and the gas are connected. And I just started laughing. I'm like, he said that like it was like Ace Ventura. Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel. Like, I, I just started laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had that moment where he comes riding in like he's Gandalf on the Eagles. I'm like, okay. But but again, this had another great moment with the music. When the Purgles jump off into hyperspace, it seemed like it was like the music from Space Mountain. I was like, okay. But, you know, Barrett, you were talking again about the space issues with the, with, uh, the physics and stuff. When Ezra jumps off the pergo onto the ship, I'm like, does the ship like create like a big bubble of gravity around it? Because when he jumps off that pergo, shouldn't he have just shot off into space and not looped up in the air and dropped down onto the ship? Little stupid things like that. I'm like, that makes no sense to me. It was just one of those issues I was having. Well, let's ask Taylor. Taylor, do you feel like you could go into space with just the helmet on without covering anything up? <laughs> 
No. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, there was one thing that I actually really liked at the beginning. It was when the detail of when how cold the ship was and that they there was like frost coming out of their mouth. And I thought that was really cool because of how cold it was. Mm-hmm. Good detail. Our fifth episode this time brings us a little bit more background on Hera. The episode Homecoming. Essentially what's happening, of course, as mentioned previously, is that Phoenix Squadron has been traveling around essentially as a roaming fleet without really any place for their starfighters to land. They need either a permanent base somewhere or they need what amounts to sort of the Star Wars equivalent of a massive aircraft carrier. And they think they know where they can get one. There is one reported above Ryloth. But getting it means coordinating with the leaders of the Resistance on Ryloth, which includes Cham Syndulla, Hera's estranged father. We see our characters come together at Ryloth. It is Cham, Numa, the little girl from the Clone Wars, of course, and Gobi, who was also part of the Battle of Ryloth in the Clone Wars Season 1, representing the Twi'leks, and then the members of the Ghost Crew, of course, representing Phoenix Squadron. Their plan is to try to capture it, but Chom has other ideas. He wants to destroy the ship and send it crashing down through Ryloth's atmosphere as a symbol to show how strong the Resistance is and inspire others to rise up against the Empire. They wind up boarding the ship, and of course, as expected, in the process of trying to take it, Chom and his people have different orders and wind up trying to instead destroy it. They do eventually wind up getting control of it, sort of at the last minute, and yes, it does get back to Phoenix Squandra, but in the process, they take out another Imperial vessel that winds up crashing down through the atmosphere, essentially giving Chom what he wanted as well. Along the way, we do have some reconciliation between Chom and Hera. We learn that Hera is estranged from her father because when Hera's mother died, essentially all that Chom focused on was liberating Ryloth to the exclusion of his own daughter. Eventually, she wound up just giving up and going off on her own, which is when she winds up with the Rebels. And essentially, she is dreaming of sort of the same thing that her father is, except for her, it's about freeing the galaxy. For him, it's about freeing Ryloth. And she has to essentially convince him by the end of the episode that in a sense, just as freeing one city led to a broader revolution on Ryloth in the Clone Wars, freeing any given planet can help to spur a broader galactic revolution against the Empire. And we see them sort of start to come to some level of terms and in the process learn at least a little bit more about Hera's background. Uh, Initial thoughts on Homecoming. Mark. This, for me, was the pinnacle of these episodes. This was the best of the best. This is what Protectors of Concord Dawn should have been. Uh, It it had angles and details and background characters and stuff that I was interested with and and to see where they were going to go. But it was what they did with them that impressed me the most. I mean, it, it had a great opening, uh, you know, great battle there where we see the loss of uh, Phoenix 2. There's an epic hallway scene with uh, Kanan and Ezra that just had me fist pumping. And the humor was on point. Like, there's a moment where uh, they're doing the abandoned ship and, and the, the officer's calling it out. And, like, all the stormtroopers are, like, looking up. And one is just hauling ass. I'm just... I was dying on that scene. I'm like, oh my God. And and again, with the Legends aspects, when we see the light carrier, I believe that is like a flurry class ship uh, straight out of Legends and straight out of the old RPG games and stuff. So there were really cool moments like that that were showing up. And again, the humor really set me off. But Chomp set up? With that shuttle and the TIE bomber? Oh, I'm like, can we please get a, a die cast of this? I don't know. There's a lot of stuff here that I can't wait to touch on. This was definitely my my cream of the crop, the cherry on top episode. 
Taylor, what'd you think? I actually really liked this one, and there was this part that uh, my dad went crazy about. It was like when Hera and her dad, when they were in like this bunker thing with Chopper, her dad said, oh, like, yeah. uh, is that that astromech you found from the Clone Wars? And she's like, it's, his name is Chopper. Uh, my dad went crazy about it. I'm like, he's like, what do you say? What do you say? I'm like, astromech from the Clone Wars. And I was like, she was alive during the Clone Wars? And he's like, yeah. And so, yeah. And then Hera, when she was arguing with her dad, she had, like, this really weird accent. Like, yeah. she had her normal voice, and then it went into this accent when as she raised her voice. The Ryloth accent. Yeah. So I, I thought that was cool as they brought that in. Barrent? Oh, man. This episode was so had so many things going for it. You know, Taylor, you mentioned the accent. That was, you know, there's certain points in Star Wars and... And in, in this in this series where it feels like Star Wars and you get the goosebumps, and the last time it felt like that was when Ezra first showed that he was very powerful, where he controls that cave creature. They there's there's certain things that give you goosebumps. When she went from the voice that we've known to her Rylot voice, it, it gave me goosebumps, and I was like, wow, that's really cool. How old is Numa? Was the question that I had, and it pissed me off a little bit to see Numa. She was kind of wasted in this. You know, we've seen Numa as a little girl and she kind of had her own episode. You know what I mean? So she was kind of the star of her episode. This was kind of like seeing someone starring in a sitcom and then you see him again doing Marshall's commercials. You're like, this guy was on li- in living color. What, what's <laughs> going on? Like Numa should have been front and center. She gets a couple lines. But I thought, like, what a waste, you know, to bring Numa back. And she could have been basically the daughter that Cham took on instead of, you know, Hera or something like that. I mean, it was such a waste, mm-hmm. you that know. Cool. I thought that was more of a waste than anything that they've wasted. Than Greedo, than Chewbacca, than any character that they've tried to bring back. This was the biggest waste that they, they had. So I think that's a pretty bold statement I just made. Anyway, um, the other thing I liked about this episode was that Syndulla, I'm starting to get to know kind of another facet uh, facet of Syndulla. This is more Syndulla of the Clone Wars, where we see him interact with Mace, or is this more Syndulla of where he's represented in that new book, uh, the Lords yeah. of the Sith book? And w- which Syndulla is this? You know what I mean? And, this is, and this is a product of the Lords of the Sith. So this is a product of the Lords. I have not finished that book, but I know that he's more of a, you know, outer space type leader than actually someone who, when we were first introduced, was sort of like, you know, boots on the ground. He was always there on the ground leading. He was the leader of the planet. Now he's kind of like this this leader who's in space and he goes around and does all these adventures. So another and and. Did he look a little different? Was he a little different shade of Native American this time? <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, in Lords of the Sith, he starts out, he's like, and I was telling Taylor too, he was like, we're freedom fighters, not terrorists. And he has to be convinced to basically make a play for Palpatine and Vader. Whereas in this, he's all about the big shows. Where, at, you know, through Lords of the Sith, that was a, a moment of his character waking up. So, like, that book serves to kind of give you how he came to be more militant as he is in this episode. 
I don't know. I, I, I like the fact that his character development, he starts out as one thing and he's going to end up as another thing. And he's still in that process. That's that's good for any character. But is, has it ever been in his character to double cross his daughter, to double cross his family? You know what I mean? Without letting her. Does he not trust Hera? And that is obviously he doesn't trust her enough to let her know what his real plan is. It's like he put his daughter in harm's way for that. I don't know if that was ever in his character. So I, I had I kind of had an issue with that when it came to Cham. I think this is an episode that it serves really well to give us character development for both Hera and Cham. And we really hadn't seen him in anything other than the Clone Wars until Lords of the Sith came out. And then when that came out, I was like, oh, is he going to play a bigger role later? Wait a second. Syndulla, Hera, maybe we'll see him on the show. And it kind of, it's been this anticipation of, you know, how is he going to be when he finally does show up? And when he does show up here, he's basically a douche. I mean, he is really, I mean, it's easy to hate Sham once this episode gets going at the beginning because of how much we've come uh, to care for Hera as a character. I found it interesting and yet totally believable that he would be in that position of being very myopic and focusing just on Ryloth and trying to free it, just like, you know, he's sort of been fighting against overwhelming odds for years. They talk about how essentially the Republic liberated them from the Separatists at the end of the first season of the Clone Wars, but the Republic was still there when the Clone Wars ended, and the Republic became the Empire, which then became immediately an occupying force, and now they're having to fight them all over again. You know, it's like it's this never-ending conflict and and wanting to get the Empire finally out of there for real. I thought that was very interesting stuff. I like the fact that Kanan had a, a it's it's an interesting kind of weird pair of reactions that Kanan has because Kanan should be the one defending Hera because and I think it was uh it was in Rebels Recon that Freddie Prince Jr. I think finally said that yes, you know, that they definitely have feelings for each other, as we've realized a couple times on the show, of course. But you would think he'd be the one protecting Hera and defending her against her father. And yet he's like, dude, you are so awesome. See, I was the Padawan of Depa Balaba. She was the Padawan of Mace Windu and you worked with Mace Windu. You are so cool. Whereas at the beginning, he's got that nervousness that I think is partly that in part. Wow, I'm meeting the woman I care for's father. You know, and, you know how's my tie? How's my tie? You yes. Know, do, I, do I look all right? Do I look all right? They played that up well. And it, again, it still felt natural, though it did seem a little bit off that he wasn't trying to defend Hera. But of course, Hera is someone who can stick up for herself. There are some some things that made me kind of scratch my head, like Numa's role, I would have expected her to be bigger. I think Barrett was right on target. That would have been really cool for him to have essentially taken her on almost like a daughter rather than Hera since Hera uh, left. But she did feel like she was, I mean, she was all right as a cool cameo to have in there. It's nice to see what happened to her, but there really wasn't much that came out of her. I wouldn't compare it to Greedo. We said Greedo, but pretty close. I found it interesting that Phoenix 2 got destroyed and it was a woman piloting, whereas Phoenix 2, when we saw it back in Protector of Concord Dawn, was male. So there's been a shakeup in Phoenix Squadron, apparently. I really would like to know the timeline of Hera's background to know when it was that she left, when it was that her mother died. Because, I mean, she was only seven when the Clone Wars began. She would have been 10 when the Clone Wars ended because she was born in 29 BBY. She's she's fairly young at the time. We see her in that short Mercy mission story that takes place between Lords of the Sith and Tarkin, but there's never really an indication of what she's doing and, you know, how does she fit in with the grand scheme of things? Though I would assume that because Isval has this thing for Chom, and it seems like Chom is having a thing back for Isval, at least to some degree in his mind, during Lords of the Sith, 
that that must mean that Hera's already gone and her mother has already died. Or maybe it's not as immediate a thing that Hera's mother dies and then Hera leaves. It's more like Hera's mother dies, Chom becomes a douche, and then she leaves later. So maybe she was still around at this point because it does talk about, you know, you have a daughter, you have a daughter, but we never actually see her or find out where she is. I don't know. I, th I think there's a lot of questions to be answered, though apparently they did answer the question of what order the ghost crew got together in. We find out that Hera found Chopper during the Clone Wars when she was very young, so Chopper would have been with her in A New Dawn, uh, though we don't see Chopper, in A New Dawn when Kanan joins. In Legends of the Lasat, we found out that Kanan was the one who found Zeb when he was all down and broken up after what happened to Lasan. And we find out in Sabine's sketchbook that it was Kanan who found her, and it mentions how Zeb was already there when she was found, so she got brought in. And, of course, we saw Ezra join back in Spark of Rebellion. So we finally have, if not exact dates, a chronology of how this group grew member by member by member, which I thought was cool. I don't think they intended it, yeah. but I thought that was pretty cool. So an episode that's certainly the best... I'd say this and A Princess on Lothal are the best two out of these six that we got. And I, I welcome more episodes like this. I want more episodes that have the emotion and the character development that this one had. And the action. I mean, let's let's take a moment and talk about that hallway scene when Ezra and Kanan are launching each other through the blast doors as they're closing. I mean, that that was so cool. And then and then Kanan gets to the end and it shuts right before he gets there. And he cuts through, you know, does the circle and then shoves it through onto the troopers. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is what that opening scene of the Phantom Menace with, with Jin and Kenobi should have been. Like that was some sick Jedi action. And I don't know if anyone else caught this, but I'm pretty sure that Zeb is the first one in Rebels to use the line, lousy imps. I don't think anyone has used the word imps uh, as a negative yet in canon. Like, I, I know that that was like something that was thrown away around a lot in Legends, but this was the first reference I remember hearing a character so far use that. I was like, oh, nice. In the Empire's eyes, all imps are bastards. Sorry, no, bad, bad, bad Game of Thrones reference there. Any more thoughts to add to this? I mean, I think we, we hit this from a lot of different angles. It is a very strong episode, though, which may lead to more discussion. Are we good to move on to the honorable ones? We are. The only thing I wanted to say is I, I think that when Cham says, I'm proud of you, Captain Sindula, that that line worked so great with the culmination of everything in this episode. And it almost personifies, you know, the, the moment of Hera getting that recognition from her dad in that last little bit of doubt. Like, like she is the leader, like she could be fulcrum at this point moving forward. Like she's, she's come a long way. You know, it's interesting you said that because I almost felt like that wasn't needed. I almost felt like Hera should, it should have been Hera saying that to him. Because she's already a leader. She could already be fulcrum, whether Cham was in the picture or not. You know, it's like a good, strong black woman who makes it without their father. You know what I'm saying? It's like they can do it on their own. I know that's going to be cut out, but. Oh, no. Oh, no. We'll leave that one in. <laughs> you know, everybody's already proud of her. You know what I'm saying? It's a hard thing to do. She didn't need his his gratitude. You know, it would have been better for me if he would have had the awakening. And it would just be, and by her saying to him, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm just being nitpicky, but I feel like that that wasn't needed. As powerful as it was, that she is m more honorable than he is for what he did. You know what I mean? He needs to be the one. She needs to be forgiving him. 
and stuff like that. You know, he needs to be groveling to her. But we'll see. Maybe that'll come. Oh, and you just gave me the transition, Barrett. Speaking of honorable, eh, eh, eh? The last well episode... <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. The last episode we're dealing with this time is The Honorable Ones, the last episode of February 2016. The Honorable Ones finds the ghost crew with Rex going to Geonosis, where we basically see what's left of a bunch of, of space-borne or orbital stations designed to help build the Death Star. But the Death Star at this point is no longer at that location, and we find that the Geonosians all on the surface appear to have been wiped out. Uh, there's been a cataclysm of some kind. They are gone, or they've been taken, as the case may be, and in trying to investigate, there winds up being a clash with Imperials, and the end result of that is that Zeb and Callus wind up both inside the same escape pod that crashes down on one of Geonosis's moons, I kid you not, named, they don't say it in the show, it's in the episode guide, Baron. B-A-H-R-Y-N. <laughs> they land on the barren moon of Baron. Uh, Yay! Find themselves uh, in an ice cave with an injured callus and Zeb essentially trying to figure out how to save really kind of both of them. They fight against some Bozami creatures, that's what they're called, designed and named after Zamboni ice machines uh, for hockey rinks and whatnot. And they have to work together to get out of this. And in the process, we find that both are very honorable. We get a side of Callus we've never really seen before, in which Callus essentially, he admits that he was questioning what happened on Lasan, that it really wasn't meant to be a massacre. He had bragged about it before, but he, he says something that makes it almost sound like his bravado... Uh, way, way back in Droids in Distress was there really just to get at Zeb in that yeah, conflict. Um, we see them uh, essentially honoring each other's weapons and such. And, and and how was it that Callus got his hands on the bow rifle? He didn't steal it from a corpse. He was given it by a member of the honor guard that he had bested in combat as part of tradition and so on. And by the end of it, Yes, they manage to get back to the surface. They use an escape pod's transmitter uh, to get the ghost crew to find them. The ghost crew arrives. Callus is hidden away. Zeb takes off with the ghost crew. Callus is left behind to, as they apparently describe in the episode guide, but is never shown on screen, to be found by an independent trader because the Empire is run out of the time that they would allot to actually look for anybody who's missing. Oh. And he eventually is making his way back to the Empire, and we see him sort of contemplative, at the end, but an episode in which we finally get to see that Callus may be one of those good villains, right? Where they think they're doing the right thing, but in doing so for all the right reasons, they are a villain. Uh, very much like sort of Anakin thinking he's doing the right thing at certain points uh, within Revenge of the Sith. So more depth for Zeb to an extent, definitely more depth for Callus. But I gotta say, and maybe this might color the conversation, it felt to me like this episode... Could this have been a more cliche-filled, paint-by-numbers predictable episode if they had tried? It was a good episode because of the character development. But holy crap, you could have lifted this story out of anything because we've seen this story hundreds of times before with almost the exact same story beats. Good, but cliche, at least for me. What do you think, Mark? I think this one could have been great. I mean, what immediately rose to mind was Enemy Mine. And then I, I started thinking, you know, this character could have been Baron Fell. I was just like, are, are we going to see Callus join the Rebels? Is he a Sienna Ree? 
And then, of course, they didn't go that way, which I, I did not know that in the episode guide that it was a, a miner that found him. Because that was the angle I was thinking. I was like, watch the Empire never comes for him. You know, oh, my God, what if he's stuck there forever and then Seb decides to go back and boom, there he is kind of thing. Like, I really thought they were doing something with that. But, no, I felt like it was a lot of a wasted uh, you know opportunity there for Callus. Like, Unless they're planning on coming back, you know, you know, like as Jonathan always says, you know, they don't leave no stone unturned and they put everything there for a reason. I, that could be, you know, this could be the turning point for Callus. And if so, I was really digging that. Like they did a lot for me for Callus in this one episode. But again, I was kind of really hoping that he was going to leave with the rebels. Like, I don't know. I was, I was hoping beyond hope. So finding out that the Empire didn't come for him is kind of like, okay makes me excited because I still get that feeling like it may end that way because I did feel like Callus had a lot of thinking to do when it was over and him sitting in his room with his head bowed down it was poignant I, I, though it didn't have the same impact as the last episode there was a lot of action missing but uh, it was doing a lot for the character development and I really I appreciated that Taylor? Well sadly I was half asleep because it was like one o'clock in the morning <laughs> And so all I remember seeing was, uh, like, Chopper went on one wheel to save someone. I don't remember oh, who it was. Oh, after the black droid. Yeah, that was Yeah, cool. and he had, like, both of the droids had some moves. Like, they were all both, like, spinning around and stuff. And then, like, Chopper was shaking his, like, arm things. Oh, his little hands, yeah. Yeah. But that's all I remember. I was half asleep and my dad just kept on trying to wake me up. But I don't remember anything else. Yeah, six episodes at... at- you know, 11 to 2 in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> My bad. I'm a bad parent. I'm sorry. <laughs> Barrent? You know, it's interesting the the perceptions that we all have. Because I can understand from your perception, Nathan, of how we've seen this done before. You know, this type of story of, of two enemies getting together and they have to work together to survive. And one enemy gets injured. One of, the, one of them gets injured. So the other one has to take care of. And, you know, we've seen that before. But we've never seen it quite done so well here, you know, especially in the universe that we love. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of stories are boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. And that's the story. And then you build around that. Well, this is a story of coming together and finding common ground between two enemies. And if it's done well... I celebrate it, and I think this was done very well. Callus is an honorable man, and after seeing this episode, I went back and looked at the other episodes that Callus was in, and he has never been a bloodthirsty killer. He's always just been kind of trying to do his job. You know, when he has the the opportunity to just kill Hondo. He doesn't kill Hondo. He takes Hondo and, and uses him. He, you know, we've we've seen Imperial officers, the Inquisitor, would just kill people. You know, he does. He's never been like that. And yeah. to see, to hear of 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 his side of the story, there's always two sides. Here, here again is the gray area. You know, there's people who work for the Empire, who work in that organization that are not evil, and it kind of sets up the stage to how we could have a stormtrooper in Finn who just doesn't want to kill anybody, you know? And it makes sense. When you have Germany, when when Hitler was... Not all the Germans were bad people, you know, but you just had bad leaders. And you can understand that. And that's real. 
And I think that Callus will join. We will find out that Callus will join the rebels. He at this time, until he had this this trek, this adventure with Zeb, I don't think that he thought the rebels were honorable. I think that mm-hmm. he may have li- he believed the po- propaganda that they are terrorists and they need to be stopped and the, and they threaten the peace of the of the galaxy. Now he knows that they're not terrorists. I mean, Zeb could have killed him and gotten out of there maybe on his own. You know, he's the one who had the beacon. Zeb had the beacon. Zeb didn't need his help. I mean, they kind of try to make it well. I can teach you how to how to climb out of here, but Zeb's not the sharpest tool in the shed. But I figure that he probably could have figured that out. Especially if when you got two beasts coming down on you, you learn to do things real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like that you went back to look at Callus because this was an episode where I was like, for the first time ever, I was like, he could be a rebel. And and the fact you picked up on that too, that was the most exciting angle for me. I was like, oh my God, I never, I never saw Callus in that light until this. Yeah. He's never been a, a bloodthirsty. He's always kind of been doing his job. And for him to realize that the rebels are not terrorists is a good thing. And for us to see that he is trying to be an honorable man and do the best job that he can do. And it makes sense that, you know, we know that the Empire gets these people from very young. So anybody can basically be brainwashed. But there is still good in him. And this is a theme in Star Wars that's one of the most important themes is there's good in people, you know, and – if you have faith in that, you know, and I, I'm more of a half glass full kind of guy, and I like seeing stories like this, especially in Star Wars. So what did you think, Nathan? I, mean, I thought this was a fairly good episode. It was an enjoyable episode, and it gave us more insights into the characters. But again, like I said, it, it was very cliche in how it did it, very predictable in how it did it. I'm not sure this is an episode that's going to be on anyone's top list, although I'm sure there's probably some. because of how- I think this was the best really? episode of all of them besides uh, – the princess one. I don't know. I just, I feel like that in order to really be like a top episode, it feels like something need, they need to do something new, not, Hey, let's take every possible cliche that exists around a situation like this and turn it into an episode. And yet still in doing something cliche in absolutely every respect, they wind up giving us an episode that is still enjoyable and an episode that builds on the strengths of these characters. I I don't think this kind of episode would have worked, say, early in Season 1. We needed to wait until we got some deeper stuff, saw Callus some more, saw a little bit of more development for Zeb, to then be able to have an episode like this and pull it off without it feeling like, wow, that was just cliche and pointless. Now it's more, that was cliche and good, which is not something that usually, I would think, needs to fit together. But I'm not sure if it can rise to the top with some of the other major really good episodes of this series when it does i mean it's very paint by number um i do think it's interesting the revelations we get from callus about his actions uh it it makes me wonder how we're going to see callus in the future like is this going to change him is this going to make him simply you know there's there's a lot of imperials that are given the the perspective both in legends and in canon you have these imperials that are they're there because they believe in law and order they believe in control to make sure that people are safe. They, they're, they're Donald Trump followers, basically. <laughs> there are people. There are people who will listen to somebody who is saying things that are just like, "Wow, that's you're basically talking like a dictator, right?" Well, I don't, I don't agree with this person. We need to just deport them for a few days, and and they'll be fine. They'll come back. No, that's not how it works. Um, well, I'll say this over here. I'll say this over here. I'll lie and lie and just, but. What is it that draws people 
to Donald Trump. What draws people to Donald Trump right now in the race is that they feel like society is spiraling out of control. And he talks about the big, you know, we're going to make America great again. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. It's a, it's that man of action type thing. And the fact that he's out there not backing down, he even, you know, when he completely is lying, he's not backing down. He's someone who can, can get people behind him and say, yes, he's going to get things done, even though some of the stuff that he's saying isn't constitutional to actually do. When you feel like society is falling apart like it was during the Clone Wars and three years of galactic chaos, people will step in and say, I will restore order. Let me be the one to help you. It, it's, it's Weimar Germany falling apart and Hitler stepping up to say, I will help you. No, I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler. I'm comparing the idea of the psychology of how people look towards leaders who say they're going to solve problems in an over-the-top sort of way. You got these Imperials who are basically saying, you know, I believe in law and order. I believe the rebellion represents chaos. So I want to protect people by serving this government. And that means the rebels must be the enemy. Whereas the rebels are thinking in terms of, even if it is messy, we want democracy. We want a republic back. The empire is tyrannical and despotic. We need to bring it down. Where each side can have a valid perspective for individuals if they're not the ones who are the dictators. They're just essentially in there doing what they're supposed to do. Callus uh, almost falls into the I was just following orders Nazi analogy in some of the stuff that he says. But you get the sense that he's not somebody who's immediately going to jump to the rebels, at least not yet, if he ever does. But he's someone who's willing to question, you know what, I know what I believe in. But do my leaders really even believe in that? Or is it all just lip service? Am I really serving what I think I'm serving? And I like seeing that in Imperial characters. Again, you see that all the time in stories like this. Again, it is a cliche. But to bring that into Callus gives him a depth that he's never had before when he was essentially the Wolverine facial hair Imperial chasing them around, constantly losing What a great ally to have in Callus, though, if it does come to where he helps the rebels, if not joins them completely, but is like an inside man, you know, and kind of helps them out, you know, maybe does a little snooping and finds some things out that he doesn't agree with. But one of the things that you said, Mark, that after watching this, if, if, if that Callus has some thinking to do and why I think that he will probably join the rebels is right before they showed the scene of Callus going back on the ship, they show the scene of Zeb, and all of his friends are around him, and it's warm, and there's light. You know, there's like a, a the, it's almost like they took that warming rock and they put, they made it bigger when he walks back on the ship. You know, it's warm, yeah. his friends are there. You know, Zeb, when Callus goes back, it's very cold. He says hi to what's that character's name? The Admiral, and he doesn't even care who Callus. Admiral, you, could care less. <laughs> is looking at his clipboard. Could care less. You know, you you had mentioned about him being an inside man, and I, I I question that because like I see him being more of the big gesture guy because that that thinking moment, like I see him being reluctant. I see him having a moment where he could kill Zeb and then he turns on like say an inquisitor versus being like you know a Zier Leonis where he's giving them information kind of thing. I don't know. I I think it might go both ways. I noticed that when they talked, when they were stranded together, when they talked about Zeb's companions, he mentioned friends. It was always friends. Your friends, you think your friends are going to find you? It started off with the rebels, then it was your friends. When they were talking about Callus being rescued, it was always the Empire. 
the empire will find us. The empire mm-hmm. will find us. So it switched from that to friends. So I think his, his thinking, I, I think we're going to see this as either it's going to be the end of Callus where he's going to hesitate and they're going to kill him <laughs> because you can Ooh. see that they don't, they don't mind killing people. They will kill people in this, in this episode, in this show, or he will get a hold of them somehow and, and be their ally. And I think it's, I think just the premise of the gray area in Rebels and expanding on that, I think it's very exciting because you can bring anyone over to your side depending on their situation. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? One thing I was glad they didn't overdo was the humor between these two. Uh, you know, we, we've watched Zeb and Ezra and Zeb and Chopper. And they could have done similar. We had one moment where, you know, Zeb's crawling up and he's got Callus on his back. Carablast. And, and Callus is like, what does that even mean? Like, I got a good chuckle out of that, but I'm glad they kept it to just like that one one-liner. Like, you know, it didn't become a, a Butch and Sundance kind of thing with these two characters. You know, it, it kept it that enemy mind line. I, I like that. Um, where they go from here, I, I'm interested. Like I said at the beginning, this could have been great. It was definitely good. Uh, but I... I I don't know. I, I I'm I'm wanting Callus to come across now. I'm wanting him to be a Baron Fell character. <laughs> he will. He will. And I like you know. You mentioned the humor. They had one other piece of humor that was nonverbal when they're waking up. They kind of fell asleep on each other, and oh, they're yeah. kind of like "Get off me," you know, type of thing. I thought that was pretty funny. Well, well, Baron, you know the story. Boy meets girl. girl oh wait. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> wrong type. Wrong type of story here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I'm very eager to see what happens when Callus comes back. I'm not sure what he's going to do, but surely this is setting some seeds for something with him to come, whether it's this season or or maybe even once we get into season three. As we're wrapping up here, something I would note for those uh, who are picking this up through iTunes and elsewhere. You may have noticed already, but for those who don't know, they have sort of played fast and loose a little bit with how it is that you can get your hands on these episodes. The so-called season pass for the first part of season two, what we thought was all of season two, turned out only to include up through a princess on Lothal. So if you want to actually pick up all the rest of the episodes on a season pass, you'll have to pick that up through iTunes as Rebels Volume 3, right? Volume is it a season so they can play it like that. And yes, you will be paying all over again. For those of you who are waiting to see it on home video, eventually that should not be an issue, but just letting you know. We have some episodes coming up, of course, in March. We'll be checking those out, leading all the way up to the finale of Season 2, the two-part Twilight of the Apprentice, which sounds pretty ominous. Before then, of course, before we get to our next Lightning Round episode, I want to thank you all for joining us this time around as we zip through these six episodes and hopefully uh, did them justice and did... Rebels Roundtable just is here. Again, we will be back for another Lightning Round episode for some of the upcoming episodes until we eventually have done enough Lightning Round episodes to cover all the episodes of Season 2. We'll also have a Season Wrap-Up episode where we'll bring the team together as much as possible again that will act both as a wrap-up for Season 2 and the series finale for the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Again, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Mark, Taylor, and Barrett for joining me. Toodaloo! Bye! Thanks, guys. It's good talking to you guys. See you guys next time. And as always, thank you for listening, and long live the rebellion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, 
Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit republicforces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved.